Hey, it's Greg Brady. How you doing? Welcome to the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Here for Bill again on this Friday edition. Started out of the gate talking about the charges that have been laid against a 20-year-old named Brady Robertson in the Brampton crash. They just had the funeral yesterday. Agonizing, heartbreaking. There aren't words. Those are two of them, but they don't do it justice. And we'll talk about justice and our system when it comes to dangerous driving, when it comes to drunk driving. We can have conversations about the police, but we also need to talk about conversations about our justice system in Canada and being there for victims so they feel justice got served. Dr. Rodney Rohde uh, will join us as well from Texas State University. COVID-19 cases spiking high across the United States. In fact, they pulled some regulations back in Texas today, and they may have to do that in Florida and California soon. We'll talk to Dr. Rohde about what he thinks the problems are, how they can be solved, and the dis- just absolutely disorienting disillusioning feeling of not making progress since we started to lock things down in the middle of March. Wendell Potter is a, what he calls a reformed insurance propagandist. And I want to spend time talking to him talks about Medicare for all. So basically he worked for an insurance company, a couple of them and said that they weren't always forthright. They weren't always honest about the Canadian healthcare system. They want people to sign up for their insurance company, but he would trumpet the U S system and say not great things about the Canadian system. Now, I've lived on both sides of the border, so I can see both sides of this argument, and I think it's going to be an intriguing conversation. And Eric Alper will join us, musicologist, music commentator. We'll talk about some of the cancel culture that's affecting music and whether it's right, what we do with the art that we like, but we're not sure about an artist if they did something 15, 20, even a lot more years ago than 15 or 20. Eric Alper will join us, and that's in light of the Dixie Chicks changing their name to just the Chicks. Get used to it, because it's staying. All that coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast. Hope you enjoy it. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, uh, the charges were filed. Um, last week, I opened the show talking about This fatal Brampton crash claimed the life of uh, a mother and her three beautiful kids. All children are beautiful if they're yours, um, but this was a beautiful family. And on the eve of Father's Day weekend, in essence, a man lost his entire family. He lost his wife. uh, He lost his three kids, six, three, and one. The woman was driving her minivan northbound, and according to police, a 20-year-old Caledon man named Brady Robertson, who was in a car crash earlier and was driving recklessly and had a suspended license and to keep from getting caught driving with that said suspended licensed license, decided to switch the plates on his car in a blue infinity G35. And he rolled through an intersection. The light wasn't his. Okay, and crashed that Volkswagen minivan into a light pole. Four people dead instantly, family ruined, obliterated, destroyed. Here's what I have to say about this. Um, Look, I, I trust I trust people who have the best intentions for people they want to give second chances to and people they want to rehabilitate. He's been charged with four counts of dangerous operation of a motor vehicle causing death. What's unclear, and we had the excellent Robin Urbach on. She's a columnist for the Globe and Mail. She's great. Um, And she raised a great question on Twitter yesterday that I wish I'd thought of, but Robin's smarter than Misha. She did. 
did they did he go right to the hospital and his broken leg? Um, did did he go to the hospital or did they get a talk? Did they get a toxicology reading on the scene? Were they ever able to find out if he was drunk or not? Because there's video of him unresponsive behind the wheel of a prior accident two days ago before this crash that, again, obliterated this family in one instantaneous moment. What are we what are we doing when we say, you know, defund the police? What are we doing when we say we want to reform things somewhat? Okay? John Tory may take money away from the Toronto police. It's certainly going to get considered in Hamilton. It's going to get considered in many municipalities. We're going to talk about it with the RCMP, given some of the things that have transpired with the RCMP over the last couple months. And I'm all for having that conversation. We can talk about the police. The police want to talk about the police, internally and externally. But I will tell you that the maximum penalty for dangerous driving causing death in our country is 14 years imprisonment. Now, unless there's a street racing causing death. That's not what they, what this person's been charged with. Impaired driving causing death. Right now, that's not what the, this person's been charged with. And you would think that he would have been if they had a toxicology reading and it wasn't in his favor. You can get life imprisonment for dangerous driving causing death and criminal negligence causing death. I want to point that out. So he could get convicted on all four counts. But here's what I'm going to tell you. Here's the punchline, and it's not funny. The maximum penalty is life imprisonment. Anyone sentenced to life imprisonment for a criminal code driving offense is eligible to, to apply for parole in Canada after seven years. Let me let that marinate with you for just a second. Life imprisonment. This person is 20, okay? He can't help it that he's 20. A 52-year-old would get life. If you get life in prison, that's your life. If you're 20, that's also your life. We can't delineate, and we should not delineate. Well, he's younger, so doesn't matter. Life in prison is life in prison. A life sentence is a life sentence. You wouldn't, you wouldn't make that distinction for first-degree murder, would you? You wouldn't make that distinction for a vicious sexual assault or rape, would you? So why are we doing it when you get in a car crash and you drive through a red light and you're driving dangerously and you already have and your license was suspended? This is not your normal accident. This isn't even a texting while driving accident. And no, there's no excuse for that either. But this guy won't get a second chance and doesn't deserve a second chance in my courtroom. And I don't know about yours. Why? Why are we going to have a parole hearing in 2027 for this person when he's 27 years old? Why is Marco Muzzo working out of jail right now, less than five years after he killed three kids and the grandparent of those kids? When are we going to ask ourselves why? Hey, defund the police. Take the cut. That's fine. Let's talk about that. But let's talk about maybe more than one thing at once that's pretty important for what we call justice. Okay? We know, no matter what you might think of the U.S. court system, we know that Brady Robertson, if found guilty of these four charges, he gets his day in court, and that's fair. If found guilty of those four charges, he wouldn't be getting a parole hearing after seven years. You don't think he should, do you? I don't. Who does? Brady Robertson? 
Sorry. Too bad. He gave up his opinion when he drove through that intersection, when he switched the plates on his car, the aforementioned suspended license. So what's the point of, I guess what we call, they're called MMPs, right? Mandatory minimum penalties. We don't have them. And some people said, Stephen Harper, you're too tough on crime. Yeah, on some crime, but not on these. Drug crimes? Yeah, probably so. Uh, you know, fraud offenses? Yeah, maybe so. I can listen to that one. Stealing money from people, innocent people. I, I, I can listen to long sentences for that. But gun crime? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I want a man- mandatory minimum penalty. Things like this? Killing families, not on purpose, but because of the way you drive, reckless nature of driving, suspended license, switching the plates. No, I'm sorry. I'm I'm not list seven years and a parole board's going to be like, what have you learned? What kind of thoughts do you have about feeling bad about this? What's your message for the family? And everyone says, hey, they don't deter criminals. Maybe so, but why is that the only consideration? Why is that the first consideration? How about we ensure victims feel justice has been rendered and the Muzzo, and the and the people that Marco Muzzo killed don't feel that way? Would you? How about we ensure the amount of time served is somewhat proportional to the gravity of the crime that you're convicted of, not charged with, convicted of? How about that being more important than, hey, what have you learned? Are we doing a good job rehabbing you and getting you back into society and making sure you're not too anxious or nervous to walk the streets again? Who's justice here for? Who is justice here for in this country? You have to ask that sometimes, and we shouldn't. Is it there for the victims or is it there for the criminals? You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, the numbers, I want to mention them really quick before we bring our guest on. Hamilton yesterday, five new COVID-19 cases, you know, in a city of over 300,000. There's more youth positive tests, okay? So that's not great. London down the road, excellent numbers. Seven straight day of three or fewer cases. But we know that that's not the case with our friends in the United States of America right now. California, Florida, and yes, Texas are all spiking. There's considerable concern. I want to bring on uh, a uh, guest from Texas State University, knows his virology, virology, knows his microbiology as well. Uh, Dr. Rodney Rowdy, uh, Rody is joining us on uh, uh, Global News Radio 900 CHML. Blah, blah, blah. Can't speak. Uh, Dr. Rody, thank you very much for taking the time to join me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Greg. I've been I've been accused of being rowdy a couple of times, but it, it is rowdy. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm you got it. As long as we all you. keep our distance, I think we, uh, you know, masks on and 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 two meters, six feet away, we can be as rowdy as we want. I'm told by the absolutely, by the authorities. Absolutely. Well, you're seeing. Um, we do seem to be going backwards. I've got American friends telling me that they feel like it's March 17 again, and a lot of progress, and a lot of work, and a lot of locking down. Uh, has not has not done the trick, and uh, it's incredibly upsetting and, and depressing to them. How have you felt about watching these numbers these last few days? Yeah, you know, as a as a public health professional for many many years, and and as a medical laboratory scientist as well, working in virology, it's just really frustrating. I think is the word I would use. I'm I'm tired and frustrated, and it's a struggle, and I'm not sure. Um, 
you know, the cure for that. We continue to try, my colleagues and I continue to try to um, educate members of the public and, and our leaders and, and other individuals that are making decisions. And it's just it's frustrating that we did such a great job, you know, from March through April to really help, you know, keep that curve down low and now to see, you know, basically what's occurring, which we kind of predicted with some of the, you know, really going back to around Memorial Day when, when some of the states started opening up and and being a little less um, restrictive of things. And and what's what's really difficult, Greg, is that, as I tell my friends and family and colleagues, is that I really don't have a problem. I think most experts don't have a problem with a bit of opening up if everyone would, you know, follow basic health precautions. And those are, of course, wearing a mask when you're out with people, uh, distancing at all possible times, and good hand hygiene. I mean, that's the big three. I keep talking about the big three. And mm-hmm. if we could do that on a consistent basis and get those percentages up, you know, to 80, 90% compliance, I think we would be much better off. It's not perfect, but we'd be much better off. And without those, without those examples being set, uh, by different leaders and without mandates in some cases, you know, people are kind of left to make their own choices. And even employers, you know, may not be as restrictive as enforcing some of those types of, of rules and regulations. So, you know, it's just frustrating. Dr. Rodney Rohde joining us uh, from uh, Texas State University on the Bill Kelly Show. Greg Brady in for Bill Kelly today. We were all a little late on masks, Dr. Rohde. I, I don't think there's any question about that. The World Health Organization was, uh, our country was, your country right. was. There's still a lot of mixed messaging on it. Uh, and and remember as well, we, we're all we were all navigating something that was new. We were all worried about surfaces a lot more than maybe we were droplets. We're worried about gas pumps and tabletops. Right. And now we're worried about we're, we're less worried about that than we are the contact between people and and the loud speaking, shouting, and and what comes out of our our mouth. So when did the green light sort of when did things shift to you for masks where you you said now nah, there's enough science and data question. here that we have to have them? Yeah, it's a great question. I think you know, and one of the things I tell again tell um, other people about this is that this is this is what science does. This is what best evidence does, and so that's part of the frustration is that I myself, I myself, going back in January, if you go all the way back to some of my early writings and posts around January was not fully on board with with masks because at that time, you know, in my experience and in my world, you always use an N95 healthcare mask because that's the ultimate protection for the individual wearing it as as well as other people around them. These masks filter down to the size of virus particles. So, you know, at that time, talking about um, cloth masks and handkerchiefs and surgical masks just didn't seem to make sense. However... You know, as we certainly started observing within several published studies, and now that's been reproduced even in some lab experimental studies, we definitely see now that some of these double, triple layer cloth masks and surgical and procedural masks will block respiratory large droplet uh, particles up to 70, up to 90 percent in some cases. And so they're really very protective of the persons around you. They're not quite, you know, as protective for you. But here's the here's the caveat. If everybody's wearing them, then it also protects you because there's less respiratory aerosols in the air around you. It's almost like vaccination. The more people that do it, the more you protect in society. So the higher coverage of mask wearers, 
the more protected you are uh, in your community and around you. It sure so, increases confidence too. I mean, I, I will tell you a story. Yeah. I, I was I, I had some errands to run after yesterday's show, but I didn't I didn't have a mask with me, and it's a little I, I'm treating it like well I forgot my wallet. Like that's that's how right. I think people need to treat it as an essential part of going in a store where there's others around. You can't always distance, and and people are stocking shelves. It, it you got to treat it like it's a, it's an essential part of your of your equipment. You wouldn't go in a store with your underwear on. You wouldn't go in a store with no <laughs> shirt on. We need the masks, man. Yeah, right on, Greg. I mean that that's a great message, and and I even have been using the message again with others when I'm talking to them. You know, it's in healthcare. So my colleagues and my students that graduate and work in medical laboratories and hospitals and healthcare, it's muscle memory. We beat it into their heads that they wear a, a mask and they wear PPE like gloves and other things. So I even talk to the public about, you know, I want you to start thinking like a healthcare professional. Yeah. You want to protect yourself. You want to protect others. So yes, put on that mask and make it muscle memory. And And it's really, to me, again, the other frustrating part to me is this is a, this is a good citizen call. This is a humane decision. This is no different than than wearing a seatbelt or not drinking and driving or or any of the other examples we could list. It's it has nothing to do to me with politics. It has nothing to do with patriotism. In fact, I think wearing a mask is patriotic right now. I mean, you're protecting your fellow citizens. It's we need to flip the script. It's cool. It's patriotic. It's actually the right thing to do to save your fellow man. I I just you know, I, I'm struggling with some of the folks that are pushing back on that, and so we're going to keep trying to flip that script. Your governor, uh, Governor Abbott, had to had to make some changes. Uh, elective surgeries have been banned in, in a lot of uh, Texas's biggest cities. So, yeah, we are rewinding the tape back to March on that. And and the optimism was was tremendous in Texas, wasn't it? There was talk of well, the Texas Rangers when they when MLB starts, they can right. have some fans in the stadium. Um, and a lot of these ideas, uh, you know, are just washed out right now, aren't they? Yeah, it's. I think it's a struggle, and people are really relooking at that. And it, and it is difficult in my home state, as well as you know, in California and Florida and Arizona, are kind of cooking again. And again, I think again, if we could get back to getting those masks on, you know, being a little less. Um, <laughs> A little less getting out and about with large groups of people. And I'm not even going to blame all the young people. You know, you're seeing that a lot in the press. I, I see mm-hmm. it across all age spectrums in my community. So I live right between Austin and San Antonio, which is Bear and Travis counties. And, and I'm in Hayes County, and our numbers have crept up uh, quite a bit, too, in the number of cases, fortunately not deaths. But So it's a struggle because we have a college here that I work for, a university that's going to have, you know, thirty-eight to 40,000 people in. And, and we have to follow those those types of guidelines. We're mandating mask use uh, when students, if and when they do come back. So, you know, I just think we need to continue to do that. And, you know, hopefully we can kind of tamp this down again. But hopefully, again, I keep saying this, we will learn a lesson at some point that health care and, and scientific evidence is there for a reason. Can we Can we be off occasionally? Absolutely. That's what science does. It's trial and error, fact gathering and and changing our data as we go, or not our data rather, but our, our outcomes of what the data is showing. So it's just a matter of trying to get those messages out there and, and, and again, flip that script to protecting one another. Dr. Rodney uh, Rohde, our guest, professor and chair, clinical laboratory science program uh, at Texas State University. It's it's strange that the masks seem to be among political lines. I also would say, I, I hope we look back in about 50 years and say, 
it's strange that science and belief of it or dismissal of it is along political lines. Because I, 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 you know, I can listen to somebody with conservative principles about economics. I can listen about justice. I can listen about religion. I can listen about a lot of things. Right. Science is science. <laughs> like I just, right. it's remarkable I, you know, to me that is. we're there. That we have so many non-believers in data and and science. Things you've spent your lifetime studying. Yeah, I. I totally agree with you, Greg. I mean, and it's this has been a passion of mine for really the last four or five years, and it's in the realm of science communication and health and healthcare literacy. And again, I, I really don't know what's happened. Um, and, and and maybe you know, some people blame social media, some people blame other things. I don't know if it's if it's exactly that. Sometimes I like to talk to people about my grandmother who lived to be a hundred years old. She was born in 1899. I mean, this lady lived through polio yeah. and smallpox, and you know, seeing men put on the moon and, and multiple wars. And I, I'm sure she's just flipping in her grave. You know, she she would have given anything to have a polio vaccine to save, you know, a child or something like back then. So the whole anti-vax movement, the whole anti-science movement, and really anti-education. It's it's mind numbing. I, I have no idea why or how we got here. But again, I I and my colleagues continue to you know try to preach the gospel, and we hope that people will understand that that facts, much like gravity, are fact. They are not really debatable. And viruses are going to virus. They do not care if you don't believe the science or the evidence. They're going to infect you. They're going to amplify and they're going to cause harm. And so we, we really need to get on board with understanding what people are trying to warn us about. And and lastly, I'm glad you said that about the, the sacrifice aspect, because and I agree, I, I don't think it's among cultural lines. I don't think it's among uh, demographic lines, because there are people who are old enough to remember uh, my parents age who are old enough to remember what it would be like to you know be drafted to go to Vietnam. Two and a half million right. Americans went to Vietnam uh, and risked their lives. Ten thousand Americans lost their lives. And yet that's the some of the same generation are the ones that are flouting this, that are saying, forget it. If I get it, I get it. I'll get better in a couple weeks. No, you may not. The irony, you know, the irony of it is just it's just almost unbelievable. Yeah. Um, it's I mean, I don't even know how to address it at times. It just my mouth just falls open because it just seems so common sense to me. And it seems like such a golden rule of public health to do no harm to one another. And I just, you know, it's just, it's just frustrating. It continues to be frustrating, and we have to continue to urge our leaders and our fellow men to kind of set the example and protect one another. And I hope to God and pray that it's, it doesn't become an issue where they actually change their mind after one of their loved ones, you know, acquire this. If you've never seen a person on a ventilator struggling for breath, um, you just really don't know what you're saying when you say things like, well, it just has to run through the population. Um, you just don't get it. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes it takes, unfortunately, those types of events to get people to come on board with science. Totally, totally. Hey, you're a great guest. Thank you for the time. And you, uh, even your messaging from Texas, I, I think it hit our listeners today to be careful, wear a mask, keep the distance, and, uh, and, and you know, swing as best we can through this. Thank you so much for the time. You bet. Let's hope that White House task force today here in the U.S. gets back on board with with these types of messages, and I really appreciate the opportunity to come on board. You bet. Thanks very much. Uh, it's Dr. Rodney Rohde, uh, professor and chair from Texas State University. He was fantastic. Yeah, there is a cor- – I'm glad he brought that up. There is a coronavirus task force uh, news conference today.
I'm surprised too. I am. I. <laughs> they stop these things like they got bored with them, right? Every damn day. There's Dr. Fauci. There's the woman with the scarf. There's Donald Trump talking about bleach and injecting it through the body some way, through, you know, orifices and things and scaring us. Oh, God, there's another one today. What a great way to go into a weekend. Another White House Coronavirus Task Force news conference. Whether they should air them live or not, certainly up for debate. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The healthcare system. And th- I, I love this topic because I, I got to live on both sides of the border. I lived in Michigan for nine years. One of our sons was born in, in a Mich- Livonia, Michigan hospital, and our other was born in Canada. I've seen the benefits, the pros, the cons of both sides. I had a job change in the States and I lost my health insurance briefly and had to buy private insurance. So this topic's really, really intriguing to me. Uh, Wendell Potter is a former VP with the insurance company. It's a big company called Cigna and he left there in 2008, but he put out six tweets yesterday and talked about um, something he felt ashamed by as a health insurance executive. And he's seeing it now. It's a, uh, it's a revelation about the U.S. system and its flaws, what we're able to do in Canada that's better than the U.S. And again, it is no, Canada is no paradise for healthcare. Maybe no country is, but there's an element of protection and an element of the fundamentals, the basics that we do provide that the U.S. has always struggled with and, and obviously a lot of political fights about it. I want to bring him on now. He's also an author and has wrote some really important books on these subjects since leaving uh, Cigna. He is Wendell Potter and he's joining me now. Wendell, it's Greg Brady. Thank you very much for taking the time to do this. Thank you, Greg. Glad to be on the show. What was the genesis of uh, of yesterday? It takes. Uh, listen, I've I've been there. We've all been there about various things where we take that deep breath, sit down at the keyboard, uh, and we let it all out. What led to yesterday? Well, I've just been noticing that the American media has spent very little time contra- contrasting and comparing our approach to dealing with this pandemic uh, uh, with other countries and Canada in particular. And I'm very much aware of uh, the work that I used to do for a living when I was at Cigna, uh, dis- discrediting the Canadian healthcare system and any other system that uh, was not like ours, uh, because I was in the business to protect the profits of the company that I worked for. I actually worked for two big insurance companies over 20 years, mm-hmm. Humana and Cigna. And uh, I left that uh, industry after a, a crisis of conscience uh, about uh, 12 years ago. Uh, and I was recently on a webinar in which I, uh, one of the presenters was from British Columbia, and she was talking about uh, the approach that Canadians largely have taken, uh, how better prepared uh, Canada was than the U.S., and, uh, and we're seeing the, the, the results. Uh, far fewer Canadians have died on a per capita basis uh, than in the U.S., and uh, uh, as you noted in just a moment ago, uh, we're seeing once again just uh, uh, how horrible we have we've prepared for and 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 handled this pandemic because of the fragmented nature and expense of our healthcare system. Now it is it is a competitive industry and your job uh, and and there aren't many jobs like this in Canada because yeah we work somewhere and and our health benefits are are paid for uh, not all drugs are but our our health benefits are paid for by uh, by the company we work for and we don't lose everything if we're to lose our jobs but you know. There is that line, right? And and you're saying you're walking the line or, or crossing right over it in terms of it, you know, cherry picking data and anecdotes to, you know, in a, in a very, very competitive industry where you want people to be with your company and not someone else's. Exactly. And I was reminded in particular of something I was uh, 
uh, having to do, and it contributed to this crisis of conscience that I've sometimes spoken about uh, that, that really compelled me to leave my job. I was uh, expected to be among those in my industry to uh, talk about, uh, you know, use this cherry-picked data about the Canadian system to try to scare people away from health care reform uh, that I knew uh, that we needed in this country. This was when, actually, when Michael Moore's movie Sicko came out right. almost 13 years ago, and I had to uh, be on the front lines to defend my company, which was depicted in the movie, and also uh, to try to uh, say that what Michael Moore was uh, portraying about the Canadian system and other systems just, was just simply not true, and I knew that that was not correct. It's one of those things as well where, here's what I'd always say, people would ask me about the U.S. experience, and I'd say, I thought my the way it worked for me and, and my wife, I met her down there, and, and like I said, we had our son there. We were there about a year and a half before we moved back to Canada, but we had a great experience. It was easy to find a doctor. It was easy to find a pediatrician. Our birth went phenomenally well, um, and I said it's a great – I had, I had a, a knee surgery down there. And I said, Wendell, it's a great system if you have a job. It, it, there's no question about it. Here I got back, and there were longer wait times, harder to get an MRI, harder to get a, an, an elective surgery. Um, so there are benefits. There are benefits, and I'm saying this, that the U.S. system has, but it's a have-have-not system, correct? It absolutely is. And even if you have a job, there's no guarantee that you have coverage because increasingly employers can offer coverage. They can't afford it, especially small businesses. And also, increasingly, if you have an employer-sponsored plan, as most Americans with private insurance do, uh, people now have to pay very high deductibles before their coverage kicks in. In many cases, they have to spend thousands of dollars of their own money before uh, getting covered for anything by their insurance company. Uh, and when you've got a system in which uh, most people get their coverage to the workplace, we've lost, as you know, more than 40 million jobs uh, during this pandemic, and uh, a high percentage of those people uh, have lost their uh, their insurance, and so has their family. So uh, automatically, uh, just mm. over the course of a few weeks, tens of millions of Americans have, have lost their health insurance. Uh, and uh, it just points out the absurdity of having a system that ties access to health care to your, to your job. There's Pete Wendell Potter is our guest, uh, former uh, Cigna executive, and, and mentioned on Twitter yesterday. You can read his tweets uh, there. Uh, they're very honest. They're very forthright. At Wendell Potter, Wendell with two L's. Um, there, there is obviously hope uh, that the system changes with a change of president potentially in November, taking place in January. But there's a lot of people skeptical. There's a lot of people that, uh, you know, say Joe Biden's old school. He's had opportunities in the Senate forever to make a big kick kick about health care and, and some changes that would benefit all Americans. And he hasn't done it. And it's not I didn't believe, um, you know, he fought a lot with Bernie Sanders in the debates about Medicare for all and a few of the other and Elizabeth Warren and a few of the other candidates. What would a Biden presidency do to change these problems? I don't think you'll see candidate Biden. Uh, very too much from what he said. He has not embraced what I advocate, which is expanding our Medicare program to cover everybody, to improve it and expand it. I think, though, once he is president, if he is president, there will be enormous pressure from advocacy organizations, from the general public, and from employers to move much further down the road to uh, uh, transforming our health care system and having a system more like the Canadian system. I think there will be more pressure than we've ever seen. Uh, primarily uh, because of the awareness now that people have about just how fragile our connection is to healthcare in this country and how easily it can just disappear. Uh, this is not going to go away, and I think that uh, 
uh, we'll see that even if he doesn't advocate during the campaign for sweeping change and just uh, fixing mm. it, it or tweaking the Affordable Care Act, there will be great pressure in going much further than that to make sure that we don't have an experience like this again and that people can afford care and even with insurance can get the coverage they need without uh, having to face bankruptcy or turn to GoFundMe to pay for their, to cover their out-of-pocket expenses. So knowing what you know and, and being where you've been, um, the, the American system compared to the Canadian system, what there, there, are, there are holes in, in the Canadian system here and there. You know there are Canadians that have said, I do need that surgery. I do want that coverage. I'm going to go to the States and get that done. Um, I have a relative that I can, you know, there's, there's obviously some benefits to, like I said, the immediate access for the, for the haves as opposed to the have nots. Are there holes that you see in Canada's system that you'd go, well, I'd fix that. Well, absolutely. I, I, I would fix it. I think that you, you know, always are making tried and trying to make progress on wait times for elective procedures and other things that are necessary. Uh, you uh, need to uh, uh, have a system that uh, covers dental care, uh, better drug coverage, uh, long-term care. So there are things that you all need to address that makes your system uh, more comprehensive or your coverage more comprehensive. Uh, but you're right. You, we have a system in which uh, the haves down here, uh, if you have a lot of money, uh, you can rest pretty sure, you know, to be pretty certain that you can get the care that you need. But millions of Americans wait endlessly yeah. uh, forever for care that they need. And uh, uh, it's increasingly become a system in this country for the for the for just a very small percentage of Americans who can really rely on this system to, to get the care that they need when they need it. No, and, and medicine is such huge huge business. Wendell Potter is our guest, calls himself on his Twitter bio or refer, a reformed insurance propagandist. So I'll ask you this. Seeing um, you know the government, you go back to 2008 and uh, some companies and Wall Street getting bailed out and the auto companies getting bailed out, then we see the spending on the pandemic. Can any politician, Wendell, Democrat or Republican, make the claim that it, it, in, a, in an emergency – there isn't enough money to provide some aspect of universal health care because we've seen buckets and and wheelbarrows full of money get distributed to corporations and people in these last four months. The money is there. Well, the money absolutely is there. Uh, uh, the opponents of reform will try to make this seem like a, a zero-sum game, that there is not enough money. But we waste so much money in this country, about a third of what we spend on health care overall goes to profit and to administrative expenses that are not known in Canada or other developed countries. So the money is there. And we're seeing, as you pointed out, uh, policymakers, uh, lawmakers can dole that money out when there's a crisis. And uh, it can also be done. We can redistribute uh, what we're spending on health care, eliminate a lot of the spending and uh, uh, cover everybody with a more comprehensive system. It's there. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I really enjoyed uh, you know what you wrote yesterday, and and I think people are going to benefit from it, and uh, and I'm glad to, you know uh, I'm glad the again if it clears uh, the conscience, I, I think it's a wonderful thing. We, we got to move forward, and and we can't always dwell on the past. So I thank you for the time today, and I enjoyed the chat. So did I, Greg. Thank you very much. You got it. Uh, Wendell Potter joining us, uh, and it's easy to say. Look, uh, at, at a certain point in time, like we're there. 
we're there with the tobacco companies, right? Like you've seen the movie Thank You for Smoking. Um, we've talked about the tobacco companies. We can talk about the liquor companies on both sides of the border. And finally getting to the point where it's like, hey, drink responsibly. You know where we're seeing it now also? Sports betting. Okay, I used to be a little bit of a sports wager. I I can't do it anymore. I can't. It's too str- it's too stressful. Twenty bucks on a on a Sunday night football game drives me crazy. I don't want to yell at the TV. I don't want my heart rate exploding unless I'm doing a workout or something like that. Over twenty bucks, but nonetheless, this is a scenario where we've all had these debates before. And and yeah, I've I've got the um, not unique perspective, but I've got the shared perspective on being on both sides. And I was a huge beneficiary and advocate of the health care that I had and the benefits that I got from the job I had. But I knew it wasn't universal and I knew it wasn't the case for everybody. We had a remarkable experience, uh, you know, having our baby in the United States. Um, put it this way. I won't tell you the hospital where my second kid was born in Canada, in London, Ontario. But I slept that night. Right. You don't leave. I slept on a cold floor on a blanket. Okay, there was nowhere else for me to lay out. You're exhausted through that process, obviously, mentally, emotionally, physically, so happy. Um, I will tell you briefly, they took they took my kid away for his uh, circumcision. I can hear him screaming down the hallway, and I'm like, hey, I get it. But in the States, couches, like, like pull-out beds, individual bathrooms, you don't have to go all the way down the hallway, a lot more TV channels. Seriously, like it was it was actually pretty four star treatment and it was maybe two and a half star treatment up here. But we all know what we benefit from. We all know what in the U.S. people struggle from. You lose your job. You lose your coverage. You're panicked. You're scared to death. And and again, you shouldn't have to pay to get well. And certainly for kids, you know, your kid gets uh, leukemia. Your kid you know, falls off a building um, or, or jumps from his roof into, into the pool and breaks his leg. You, you know, these are accidents. You shouldn't go into debt for that. You shouldn't have to say, well, it's either health care or college. Which one are we going to take a loan out for? Because we don't have to do that here in Canada. We've got our own issues. Wendell Potter just said it. Not quite where the states is. It is a, he writes it, it's a profit-driven model and it's failing. And it's a disaster when you're in a health care crisis uh, like this sort, 27 million Americans, and there's going to be more, have lost their employer-sponsored coverage. Nah, it's not even close to that number in Canada because there's a safety net that catches us when we fall and try and pick ourselves back up healthcare-wise. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yeah, I want you to listen, because I think you'll know who this is, but then again, you won't. Listen to this song. This is a pretty recognizable tune. Uh, this band's been around forever. Yeah. What? Okay, so you, yeah. I think we hit the chorus. That's like rock set. Don't bore us, get to the chorus. We went right to the chorus, and that's, no, no, it's, no, no, that's not their name. It's, you're wrong. You got that wrong. You lost the bet. You owe me a beer. It's not the Dixie Chicks. It's the Chicks. Yeah. They uh, changed their name yesterday, okay, on the heels of Lady Antebellum becoming Lady A. The Dixie Chicks are now the Chicks. And again, I'm not calling them that. They are. So don't scream at me. But uh, People Magazine, among others, confirmed yesterday, read the uh, Rolling Stone, because it's the reference to the Civil War era South, 
Names changed on their website. Names changed on the social media accounts. Uh, and that's a sign of the times, a changing sign of the music times. Let's bring in a gentleman that knows, loves, delights in all things music. You can follow him on Twitter at that Eric Alper. He is that Eric Alper. It's great to talk to you. You know, when we last talked, we said, God, are we going to get to go to Rage Against the Machine in the summer with all our friends in Toronto and <laughs> Hamilton? And we were like, yeah, maybe, like 50-50. Boy, oh boy, we didn't see this coming. That's why you and I should never, ever step foot <laughs> in a casino. Um, and and stick with talking about other people and things on the radio. I mean, real, I mean, this is such a perfect example. And it's a great, I'm sure that you didn't mean it to be a segue. Yeah. But look, a month ago, people were talking about, well, maybe we can have shows of 100 people. Um, forget about last month. I mean, this is an hour-by-hour hour scenario of what is happening to not just artists, because it's not, it's not really about music. It's about language, and it's about meaning, and it's about sociology when, you know, people might have been sleeping in class, about how language change, um, feelings change, mm -hmm. and social media is driving the cause to, some would say, off a clip, and others would say into the right place. And I tend to think that we're all heading into a, a wonderful, um, exuberant direction of knowledge right now that would have been unfathomable uh, even four months ago. I, I agree. I, I think we're getting into a better place. We're listening to each other more. It's tricky with art, though, because everyone says, you know, I'm going to use this example a bunch of times. Like, Billy, you go to a wedding, you're having a great time, and the DJ puts Billie Jean by Michael Jackson on. Yeah. People want to dance for those four minutes, but they don't necessarily want to think about some of the accusations, the incredibly serious, horrible, horrifying accusations about the late Michael Jackson. So we have wavered on this front for years and years and years, right, with domestic abusers and, and people that have written songs that have been, you know, misogynist, and we say... What's the, you know what's the, the the balance of the scales, Eric, and and how how what do we do with the art that we so love from some of these artists? Yeah, and it and it it, it, it breeds new life into those arguments, and it 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 opens up a whole other can of worms with who is being affected by it. Look, you you're you're old enough, and a lot of your audience is old enough to remember what happened with the Dixie Chicks when they said. Um, you know, during the George Bush era, um, that they were against the Iraq war. And they said this in London, England. So forget, you know, before social media was even in existence, it traveled slowly to America where they were one of the first people to be caught up in this cancel culture where anything that you say to your audience might be seen as agreement with the audience that you hold up a mirror to. But then there are other people who still scream at Bruce Springsteen to stop talking about politics. So, you know, when you're an artist and you're a musician, you have to understand that your past is going to catch up with you and that the things that you said yesterday, last month, 10 years ago, are going to come back. Look, John Wayne was canceled and made into a trending topic because of, because of a homophobic word that he used towards gays and lesbians mm -hmm. back in the 1970s during an interview with Playboy magazine. I don't think he cared because he's been dead for the last 20 years, but um, nothing is really safe. And we're seeing that every single day. 630 uh, Rock, the television show, took off a number of episodes with a character in blackface. Jimmy Kimmel has been, um, you know, he got in a lot of flack for 
for uh, for skits that he he's done and he took them offline. Even the most popular YouTuber of all time, when Jenna Marbles. Yeah. YouTube yesterday with her 20 million subscribers because of videos that she did it with blackface as well. So, you know, now's the time to reflect on our past right now and say, is there anything that might come back to bite me? Because if so, I better start making amends and apologies and taking it down and making those changes right now. And that's exactly what, what the chicks and Lady A have done. And, and it's really tricky, right? Like the, everybody's got that line, and and I I've heard people say, "Well, I, I hate this whole cancel culture thing." And I think if we judge it on an individual case by case basis, and and someone did something 15 years ago, and they lay it out, and they say, "This is what I did wrong." If if Jimmy Kimmel lays that out about his blackface sketches, I'll give you a great music example, and I want to talk to you about it because you'd remember it. GNR, right? Hot as a pistol, yeah. but that song one in a million, and they were opening for the Stones. It, on the Steel Wheels tour, and and also opening was Living Color, and they almost came to blows over it. Like the Living Color guys said, "That's not right, man." Like that song is a, that's and Eric, that song was a problem in '89. It's a massive, massive problem now. Uh, as a matter, of, and 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 Axl Rose said he absolved himself from it. He's like, "Wish I'd never wrote it. Wish I'd never sang it. Wish it was never on the album." That's the best you can do. Yeah, you know, I can't tell you how many veteran heritage classic artists that I've spoken to in the last two years that are terrified. Not uh, not that they have done anything wrong, but that the times of the 60s and 70s were very, very different. And I can loop in what happened with Guns N' Roses in the 80s, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look back at those music videos of Warrant, Motley Crue, Poison, I mean, just the sheer derogatoriness that they use women in their videos um, is cringeworthy right now. Um, but that was the time. And, and I don't make excuses for it. Um, I certainly don't, don't speak on behalf of those artists. But, you know, when we're, seeing art, when we're seeing comedians and artists being called out daily on Twitter for their behavior online, grooming underage girls, asking them to pose for pictures mm-hmm. um, and things like that. Um, is Mick Jagger next? Is David Bowie next? Is Jimi Hendrix next? I mean, these three guys specifically have had hundreds, if not thousands of sexual liaisons with women. And that's what some of these older artists are talking about to me. It's like, oh, who's going to come out with something 50 years later? And I just kind of shrug and say, I don't know, maybe nobody, maybe 10 people. I have no idea anymore. No, I don't either. By the way, Steve on, on Twitter is a big fan of yours. He said, I love Eric Alper. Great conversation with him. No. But, you, but you guys should bring up the stones and brown sugar. And just as you said that is when I read the tweet. And he's he's right. And and there's a song that's patently offensive. You could not write that song now. But Mick and Keith came to that farm north of Toronto, and they play it. Eric, you know brown sugar is one of the 10, 12 songs that people will say, well, the stones got to play that every night. But we'll be asking in the future, like you you just referenced, do they yeah. have to play that every night, right? Um, yeah, you know, and and it all depends on who the power is. And this is this is why I got into music and the industry in the first place. It wasn't really about the music and the songs and stuff, although that was a big part of it. But it was about what was happening around it, what was happening with the economy, what was happening with the people, what was happening politically to make these songs happen. And I had a real keen interest in that history of what was going on around them to create that that brilliant music. And yeah, you know, um, the, that use of slang for 
for black people and other people of color that have been kind of, you know, looped in and, and, and mixed with songs back in the 70s. Again, like, mm-hmm. it was almost okay. Uh, actually, it wasn't almost. It was okay because certain radio stations all over the planet started playing it and then it turned into a, a massive classic song. So who's going to call them out on it? Is it going to be the media that grew up with that music and still love the Rolling Stones? No because they don't want to hurt their heroes. So who is it going to be? Is it going to be some 17-year-old on Twitter with four followers, but somehow it gets picked up by BuzzFeed looking for hits? Yeah, that's how this thing, that's how it starts. Um, Mm. So you have to look at who is protecting who, who might be paying off who to make stories disappear, because it does happen. It's not a conspiracy. Um, And who's got the power to be able to, to make things go away? You know, why, why is it that, you know, well, you and I've talked about this before. Yeah. Why is it that men in the music industry primarily have gotten a free pass and almost godlike status for sleeping with 10,000 women where, you know, Taylor Swift and Ariana Grande get berated in the media with every boyfriend that they have that's longer than, you know, a, a month. And that's okay. They're young. They're supposed to date. But why is it that the media continually slams women and maybe not men? Nobody is out there calling, you know, Mick Jagger, you know, a womanizer. They're like, you know, he's a sexual conquest. You know, it's all... It's all bizarre. It's well, all it's bizarre. it's really a, you, it's such a fascinating chat, and and yeah, we love the industry so much. It's really hard for me to believe that if I was you know 22 and I'm I'm John Taylor and Duran Duran, it's really hard to believe that. Uh, and I'm not married, and I'm not a family person. It's really hard to believe I wouldn't enjoy uh, the fruits of my labor. Because oh. I, I worked pretty damn hard to it. You ask any musician, you ask athletes, what they get? They got in it for the money and the girls and and the and the fame and the power. Sure, they did. And when Madonna got in for that reason, and and lots of female artists get in for that very same reason. Madonna's been able to be with whoever she's wanted, whenever she's wanted, and like you said, she gets a lot more stick for it than a man would. It's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah, sex is the first connotation of that of that thing. Well, it's so funny that you brought up John Taylor because not only am I a huge Duran Duran fan, <laughs> but you know, know he you reveals are. in his autobiography that the tour book that they used to get, um, that, that the tour managers would give each of the members of Duran Duran would reveal things. And it happens in every tour. It lists um, the nearest hotel, the nearest emergency phone numbers, great restaurants in the area. It's kind of just like a guide to the city that you're going to be visiting. Um, They had the age of consent on the top left-hand corner of every city in America just so that they knew. If that doesn't tell you that Duran Duran... I mean, forget about lock up your daughters, lock up your mothers and your grandmothers when Duran Duran came into town. You know? Well, you gotta, you do have to lock up the grandmothers now. They're sixty, but yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, for sure. But you know, all of this is it. It, it always comes back to to what the original topic of conversation was. Is like, well, why now? And and now that you know, the entire North American population seems to be woke about you know, making these difficult decisions about educating ourselves and talking about different speeds and different lengths and different methods on on how to use our voice and, and that words matter and that people are committed 
to being part of this movement. Um, Dixie Chicks wrote one line on their Instagram account announcing the name change, and it was, we want to meet the moment. So they weren't waiting for the backlash. They they struck it head on. And in fact, just the fact that they changed their album cover and the website and all of Mm -hmm. the new releases showed that they were thinking about this pretty quickly and made those changes quickly. So this is what it is. It's, it's all of us now meeting the moment. I'm sure you had to go through the exact same thing on a daily basis, maybe catching yourself on some word that you might have thought was okay, but now it's not. Oh, live microphone, uh, 17 and a half hours a week. What could, what could go wrong, right? <laughs> I yeah. don't have a delete button. I always tell people that. I'm not a newspaper columnist. They can't be like, nah, not a good idea. It just comes out. And yeah, there could be repercussions after. So I'm dying to ask you what your optimism level is um, for live music. I always think there's a date we would take, like April of next year, March of next year. We'd sign up to be back out. We know outdoor shows should be safer than indoor shows. Uh, do you feel all these artists pushing shows back basically to the same week of, of 2021? Should we be optimistic that's going to work? Yeah, I, I think it's going to happen sooner. In fact, we've seen a lot of uh, a lot of announcements right across the country with drive-in theaters now. Um, there's a, a number of country artists, including Gord Bamford, that has done a little bit of a tour in Alberta, uh, playing to about 250 people. In fact, there's going to be a drive-in candidate mm. festival happening right up here where I am in Markham, um, and they're charging $250 a car for a day-long festival as well. The Senator Restaurant in Toronto is doing a rooftop concert starting tonight and every weekend where they are not only going to be playing to the 20 people on the rooftop, but they're going to be serenading the people on the street, um, all using social distancing. So that's interesting. Big shows, absolutely. That's the house. Nothing until 2021 yeah. summer. That's the, that's the earliest that anybody could even get insurance for. But smaller shows in Hamilton, yeah, I can see maybe 20, 25, 30 people um, in the next couple of months or so. The question is, can these venues survive that long without having customers in? And can the artists survive playing to 20 people as opposed to playing to 150 like they used to? Yeah, totally. And the road's going to be crowded in 2021 because there were people already going out then anyway, and you got everybody delayed a year. It's like a traffic jam. Uh, but that's good. That's good for the audience. And we'll all be at a ton of post vaccine. We won't be, we got, if you got disposable income, you can't wait to get out there again. Uh, and that's going to be a big, big factor. Eric, I got to leave it there. Have a great weekend. You're awesome. Thanks for doing this. You too. Thanks so much for having me. Got it. Uh, that Eric Alper. By the way, his serious show, uh, he interviewed a um, guy from Radiohead. Exactly. Uh, Ed O'Brien. I was thinking one of the green ones. But yeah, Ed O'Brien's got a solo album out. You can hear that uh, on demand, by the way, on the Sirius XM app. Uh, Eric has a show on satellite radio. But great for him to spend some time with us. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Craig Brady. Hope you enjoyed it. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review. And I'll be back with another one tomorrow.